0: somewhat challenging to go through the book of Jonah verse by verse because it is a narrative, it's a story, and so you almost have to go through it scene by scene, but um, we've done our best to work through it, and we're getting close to, close to the end. Jonah chapter number three, this is the third scene. You can almost break down the book of Jonah by uh, each chapter is a scene, and so this is the third scene, and, and in the third scene of Jonah... We find Jonah finally obeying God in his call to preach the gospel or to preach a message to the Ninevites um, who will ultimately come to a faith in Christ, come to repentance and um, experience the mercy of God, experience the grace of God, the goodness of God. The theme of the third chapter, especially the latter part, Uh, of it is the repentance of the Ninevites. And repentance is not just seen in this portion, but it's also seen throughout. We saw Jonah repent in chapter number two. We saw uh, the mariners repent as well. And so you see this idea, this theme that goes throughout that, this idea of repentance is kind of a a theme that runs throughout the book uh, of Jonah. And this morning, we're going to focus in on this idea of repentance and what is repentance. And if you notice on your um, handout, the title of this morning's message is the Repentance as a Means of Mercy or as a Means of Grace. If you did not get a handout but would like one, if you would raise your hand now, we'll get you one of those. PJ's got those back there. Anybody that would like, we've got one over here, a few, and... um, So what we want to note, just a few things kind of as introduction to the text before we read the text, is repentance uh, is seen in this, in this context as a means of mercy. And when we talk about a means of mercy, this does not mean that repentance is a cause of mercy. In other words, you can't, you can't do repentance and then demand a result. You're not earning something by repenting, nor are you earning something. There's no, in, in so many ways... Again, in, in conflict with our modern teaching, there is no there is no way in which you can do anything and then make a demand on God to respond to what you have done. Everything that we do, even in our even the things that are good, are ne- are never worthy of what we are asking God to respond with. So, repentance is not the cause of mercy, but it is the means of mercy. It, it, it is the way that we get to the mercy that God promises us. What we want to note, in, again, in, in introduction, is that um, mercy, the cause of mercy, is mercy. It is the character of God, it is the nature of God, that his desire to show mercy is the reason why we experience mercy. If God was not a merciful God, there would be nothing, absolutely nothing that we could do to, it, to have his mercy, because there is no... There is no way to earn or to merit mercy. It must be in the heart of the giver, must be fundamental to the reason why it is given. So we just want to lay that foundation because some people think of repentance or faith as a a way to make a demand on God. And God owes us because we've come to Him in repentance and faith. If your attitude is, is, is such you really have never come to God in what we would call true repentance and faith because true repentance never makes any demands. True repentance never makes any demands. It comes recognizing that it is completely unworthy of anything good being given. And our Heavenly Father, who is a gracious Heavenly Father and merciful, then responds in love and compassion and kindness because he is a loving and compassionate and kind God. Okay, these are important foundations. I'd like you to think of a uh, of repentance as like a tunnel. Okay? Repentance is like a tunnel through which you go to get to your desti- through which you go to reach your destination, but it is not the reason or the cause that you've reached your destination. Okay? You go through a tunnel to get to the end. The tunnel is not the reason you reach your destination, but it is something that you go through to get to your destination. Uh, repentance is something that we go through. It is a means that we go through to reach the destination, which is God's mercy and God's grace. Just because you go through the tunnel doesn't mean that you, re- you are owed the destination. It is, a, it is a process that God puts us through. So let's read this morning. If you want to follow along with me, we're going to read about Nineveh's repentance primarily. But um, before we do that, just note this. That Jonah repents in the previous passage of Scripture. God brings about Jonah's repentance through persecution, right? Uh, Hardship, uh, trials and tribulations. And sometimes repentance does come as a result of trials and tribulation. All right? Just notice this and I said a moment ago that mercy is the cause of mercy, right? So God in his mercy brings Jonah to a point of repentance, right? He brings him there. He puts him in storms. He puts him in trials and tribulations. He's he's in that moment of of total despair, and he cries out to God for help, and then God sends a, a big fish to swallow him up, and in that fish there is life. So God brings Jonah as a merciful and gracious God. God brings Jonah to a point of repentance, to a point of despair and desperation, and then God responds to that with more mercy. So God is the beginner, the author of the mercy that we receive, and then he responds to our response to the mercy that we received. Nineveh is the same. Nineveh does not come to repentance by, necessarily by trials and tribulations, but there's another um, process that God puts them through to bring them to repentance, and then God responds to their repentance by showing them mercy. So let's read together in chapter number three, Jonah 3. And we'll begin reading in verse number 4. The Bible says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them, even to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and set in ashes. And he issued this proclamation, published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. So what we see in this story is God turns his God turns his um, his determination to bring judgment and condemnation on the people of Nineveh into a determination of showing them grace and mercy on the basis of the fact that they had turned away from their sin. They had turned away from their from their evil, from their wickedness. When we go back to chapter number one. The Bible says that Nineveh Nineveh's sin was so great that it rose up before the nostrils of the Lord and it made, him, it made him sick to think about the sins of the Ninevites. The reason why he had determined judgment on them was because of their sinfulness. But he sends Jonah to come and preach a message of condemnation to them, ultimately to lead to their repentance and to their turning away from their sins. So let's look at this idea of repentance from our text here. The first thought this morning, and the first thing, if you're taking notes, is a clarification of repentance. What does repentance mean? The word literally means to turn from sin and to dedicate oneself and one's life to the Lord. It is to feel regret or contr- to feel regret or contrition and to change one's mind. To change your mind, to feel remorse, to be converted, to turn back or return. So ultimately, repentance is turning from one direction and going in the other direction. It is a turning away from one thing, which is sin, and turning to something else, which is righteousness. It's not one side of that. It's not just turning away from sin, but it's a turning to something. So we're turning away from unrighteousness. We're turning away from sin. We're turning to Christ. Repentance is really a main theme in the entirety of Scripture. Jesus' message was repent, right? That's what Jesus preached. He preached as He went around preaching. Jesus Christ preached the message of repentance. Everywhere he went, he said, repent for the kingdom of the Lord is at hand. If Jesus Christ taught repentance, I think it's valuable that we acknowledge that repentance is an important part of our life. According to Luke chapter number 13, all of those who do not repent will perish. If we do not repent, turn away from our sinfulness, and turn to Christ, according to Luke 13, we will all perish. And this word perish is a a term that's used to describe uh, judgment, condemnation. Uh, being separated from God forever, and in that separation from God, being, being put into a place called hell where there is nothing but condemnation. According to 2 Timothy 2.25, repentance is a gift, and according to 2 Peter 3.9, repentance is something that God desires for his people. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 9, For God is not slack concerning his promises towards us, as some men count slackness or laziness, but he is patient. He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to, all should come to repentance. The Lord's desire is, is that we all come to repentance because God is a God who shows mercy to the repentant. So he often, and, and Peter is a great example of this in 2 Peter 3.9, they are going through great persecution and heartache. And the Bible is, what the Bible is saying is, is that God is allowing this heartache and this persecution to take place for what reason? That all men might come to repentance. So the reason for the persecution, the reason the Lord is patient with the persecutors is that all men might come to repentance. He says this in in Romans 9 when he talks about that God is long-suffering to those who have been determined for judgment. They have been determined for condemnation. He says God is patient with them so that those who have been determined for mercy will understand how great his mercy is. God is patient with them. Repentance is a turning away from something and a turning to something else, and it's very, very central to the theme of Scripture. There are two types of repentance in the Scripture. There's a worldly repentance, which is simply a mental anguish or guilt, and there's a godly repentance, which is conviction that leads to transformation. Think about this. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says it this way, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So I would say there's a distinction between repentance that is full of guilt and shame and uh, and repentance that is full of conviction. Uh, Repentance that's full of guilt and shame is that which condemns us as a whole. We feel guilty. Judas is a good example of this. Matter of fact, Judas felt repentance, and when he went back in and he threw all the coins on the ground, and the Bible says he actually felt repentance, but it wasn't repentance that was leading to salvation. It was an internal guilt or shame for what he had done, a sorrow for what he had done, but an unwillingness to acknowledge and accept the grace of God. It didn't lead to transformation. It led to destruction. So some people can experience repentance that is not biblically salvific. It doesn't bring about salvation. It's just a sorrow inside of them, a feeling that, man, I did something wrong, or I'm sorry I got caught, or whatever might be the case. It's not a a saving repentance. And then there are those who who experience what we would call a saving repentance in which God convicts them about their sinfulness and brings them to an end of themselves in which they acknowledge their sinfulness and they... And they uh, accept whatever, whatever he decides to show them. I think another distinction between what we would call true repentance and false repentance is, is false repentance makes demands on God. It's like, Lord, I'm sorry for this, but now that I said I'm sorry, you can no longer bring judgment or condemnation on me. True repentance says, Lord, I've committed this crime, and you can do with me as you see fit because I am because I am guilty. And I am worthy of condemnation and worthy of judgment. What Nineveh experiences here is godly repentance. They experience a transformation of heart, a change of heart. They, they experience true salva- salvation. They experience the mercy and the grace of God. So that's a clarification, just a definition for you this morning of what is repentance. The second thought this morning is what is the cause of repentance? The Bible says that Jonah is sent to Nineveh and he is told to tell them a message, to give them a message, to preach a truth to them. And the truth is just simply five Hebrew words that uh, in in the English language is this, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So in this context, what's the means by which Nineveh comes to repentance? Or what's the cause of their repentance? Well, it is simply the truth. The truth being told to them is what drives them to a, to a state of repentance. Now, this is not a positive truth. This is not an encouraging truth. It is simply the truth. Truth is what brings about what God wants to accomplish in our life because God is the God of truth. Even, even when you're dealing with, with uh, what we would call deceptive um, uh, Christianity that tries to manipulate people to come to Jesus by health, wealth, and prosperity or whatever it is, that stuff is of the devil because it's not, it's not, you're not dealing in the realm of truth. Truth is what's going to produce the change that an individual needs to experience that is truly salvific. There must be truth in order for there to be true repentance. The truth is what brings us life. We see this all throughout Scripture. The Bible says that you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. The Bible says that that Satan is a deceiver, he's a liar. He's always telling us things that are not absolutely true. And I'll tell you this, he's, he's, he's convinced us of things that are this close to the truth, but just not already all the way there. It's absolute truth. Jonah told them exactly what God told Jonah to say to them, and it was a negative, it was a, it was a horrible proclamation. God is going to destroy you in 40 days. Right? Who wants to hear that? I mean, if we saw Jonah today on a street corner in some big city, we would all look at him and we would go on the other side of the street and make sure that we walked away from him, wouldn't we? it has got to be truth there. If there, is, if there isn't any truth being presented, even if the truth is negative, that one day God's going to come back and you're going to stand before him and you're going to give an account for your life and those who have accepted Jesus Christ and those who have come to him in repentance and faith will be received into heaven and those who have rejected him will be condemned forever. That's the truth of God's word. And that truth will bring life. It'll bring repentance. It'll bring transformation. Truth is what brings this change. So there, there, must be tr- there must be pure truth, unaltered, unmanipulated, not watered down, not half-truth, but only full truth. The Bible says about Jesus Christ that he was full of grace and truth. Listen to this passage in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness that God perhaps might grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Truth must be present in order for there to be repentance or that there will be repentance. Truth must be present. There's other verses that I've written on your sheet and I would encourage you to read those in your own time. But it is is necessary that truth is there. And that truth isn't always positive. It isn't always encouraging. It isn't always uplifting. But people need to hear the truth. They need to hear the truth. You can't, listen, nobody wants to go to the doctor who is dying of cancer and have the doctor say to them, you're fine. They want to know that they've got cancer, that they can then deal with the cancer that they have right we get on the medicine we see the doctors we get we try to get things worked out so that we can live a little bit longer people need to hear the truth because it leads to life it's not any different spiritually people are going to stand before God one day and give an account for their lives and those who have not come in repentance to Christ have not come in faith to Christ will be condemned that's the truth we're all we're all we're all we're all um we all have this disease called sin, and that it's, it's a fatal disease. It will kill every one of us. And that it's appointed to men once to die, and after this comes the judgment. The death that we experience in this life for our sins is not, it's not the end. It's the beginning. We now have to deal with God for our sins. That's the truth. You want to get somebody to come and fall on their knees before a holy and just God and to, and to beg him for mercy like the Ninevites do, you've got to tell them the truth. The truth has to be presented, and it stinks. The truth stinks to a lost person, it's horrible. But listen, if we don't tell them, Ezekiel says if you're a watchman on the wall and the enemy is coming and you see them coming and you refuse to tell them, then everybody who dies because that enemy comes in and kills them, the blood is on your hands, watchman. The truth has to be presented. God is going to bring people to their knees, and when he brings them to their knees, he's going to show them mercy. The problem in this generation, folks, is we have too many professing Christians that have never been on their knees. They're full of intellectual knowledge, and that's all Christianity is to them. We need a Christianity where people are on their knees before God. But they've never seen a God that is holy and just, and and truly they're going to give an account to him one day. The truth has to be presented. And the truth, the Bible says, will make us free. The truth will make us free. Proverbs tells us, the, Proverbs, Proverbs tells us what is the beginning of wisdom. Happiness in the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is the beginning of wisdom? It's the fear of the Lord. It's lacking. It will be restored one day. My fear is that it's not going to be too late. There must be truth. The second part of this, the second part of this point is simply someone must speak the truth. And not only that there is truth, but there must be a speaker of truth. And it is our job to bring that truth. It's our job to sow the seed into the ground. It's our job to plant the seed, to water the seed, to, to nourish the seed. It's God's job to bring the increase. If there is no truth, there will be no repentance, there will be no faith, and there will be no salvation. True? Romans 10, if you want to turn there with me, I'm going to read a short portion with you. Romans chapter number 10, the New Testament. The Bible says in verse 17, let's go back up to verse 13. For there is no distinction, verse 12, between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the picture here of calling on the name of the Lord is somebody who is in desperation. You've been in that, in that boat before. It's not this call like, hey, can I have 20 bucks? It's this call of, I'm getting ready to die. I'm, I, am, I am at the bottom of the ocean like Jonah was. The, the, bars, of, the bars of Sheol have wrapped themselves around me. The, the plants that are at the bottom of the sea have begun to grab hold of my body. I cannot be set free. And that's the type of calling on the Lord that's referred to here. This is somebody who is in a desperate situation. Here's what he says. We go on. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have never, what's the next word? Never heard. And how shall they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Who are, who are, who are the sent ones? Who are the sent ones? Who is the great commission to? It's to us. Go As you're going into the world, preach the gospel. Share the gospel with people. Without the preaching of truth, without the sharing of truth, will there be salvation? Can there be salvation? I don't think so. According to Romans 10, it's impossible. There must be the preaching of truth in order for there to be salvation. Now, salvation doesn't come because you preach the truth. Salvation comes because God brings salvation. Because God is a gracious and merciful God. It's not because you did something. It's because he did something. But he used his means for accomplishing that purpose. Let's go on. Number three, the capacity of repentance. You'll notice in the text that when the repentance takes place, who does it affect? In the text, in the story of Jonah, when repentance takes place, who does it affect? everyone, like the cows and the pigs and the sheep and the goats. When repentance takes place in a culture, when a repentance takes place in an individual's life, there is no room hidden from repentance. There is no area that we say, well, God, I'm repentant of this, but I'm not going to repent of that. Repentance is a, is a giving everything, a submitting and a surrendering of everything to God, And the reason why the Lord had us mention all of these different categories is to give us the idea. He wasn't concerned that the cows repented, right? He wasn't concerned that the cows didn't eat and drink, and he wasn't concerned about the cows going to heaven when they die. But what he was concerned with was us understanding that when repentance takes place, it affects everything in our life. There's nothing left untouched When a person comes to to the end of themselves and they fall down before God and they lay themselves at his mercy and they they plead with him to deliver them from their sins. There's nothing, there's no room unopened when that happens. There's no cows untouched, right? Right? It is a full out, that's why, listen folks, that's why people come to this, this, this modernized idea of repentance and they get up and they don't experience mercy. And they think, well, why didn't I experience mercy? I repented. Because you repented of like the areas of your life that you just want to be better. And the Lord is not about that. The Lord is about full on repentance where somebody kneels down before him and puts on sackcloth and ashes and says, Lord, here I am broken and empty and I need something from you. It's a full-out repentance. It's not, Lord, please fix this part of my life. It kind of stinks right now. My relationships are, you know, it's not, it's, not, it's not your decision. Repentance comes and says, I'm empty. I'm broken. I have nothing to offer, Lord. And it lays itself at the mercy seat of the Lord. And the Lord says, I will show you mercy. It's too often, folks, that we see people coming to the Lord for mercy, not coming to the Lord in repentance. The capacity of repentance is simply that it affects all areas of life. Everything about us is repentant. The whole entire city. I mean, just think about it. The Bible says it's a three-day journey, so that means that Jonah had gone one-third of the way through the city, right? So that means one-third of the city had heard this message and the message gets to the king, and the king, so the king sees one-third of the city is repentant, and the king says, it affects the king. The king sees what's going on, and it affects the king. And it affects everybody in that entire city. True repentance affects everybody. True repentance affects everybody. It'll affect your family. It'll affect your friends. It'll affect your workplace. It'll affect everything about you. True repentance will will affect you in every single way because you're laying yourself at the feet of the one who can change you. Acts 16, 30 and 31, the Philippian jailer. You guys know the story. He's getting ready to, to pierce himself through with a sword because he feels like the... the um, all the prisoners have been set free, and they're all still there, and and Paul says to him, um, well, he says to Paul and Silas, he says, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. The Apostle Paul wasn't saying to the Philippian jailer, everybody's going to get saved by your salvation. The Apostle Paul was saying is that your salvation is going to affect all those around you. I'm going to come to your house and we're going to this is this isn't going to be something that's just personal. It is life-changing and it changes all of those around us. Let's go on number 4 companions of repentance. Four things that happen in the text that accompany another word if you wanted it to put next to it would be things that accompany repentance. Things that accompany repentance. He says, he says, the first thing that accompanies repentance is believing God. He says that, and the people of Nineveh in verse number five believed God. In other words, before repentance take, took place, they did not believe God. They did not believe in God. They did not believe what they had read about God. They did not believe God. Now, they have been brought to the end of themselves. They have been brought to the pigsty. They have been brought to a point where the where they recognized that there is coming judgment and they believed God. They accepted what he said. They acknowledged that he was telling the truth. You'll notice that they did not say that they believed Jonah. Jonah was simply a messenger of God. And then when you're presenting that message of the truth, it's not about them believing you, it's about them believing God. It's about them believing what God's word says. So right away, the first first aspect or the first companion of repentance is is that their view of God changed. Their view of God was altered. They no longer viewed God in the same way as they had viewed him before. They changed their mind about who God was. Before this story, he was their enemy. Before this story, he was somebody who was um, not their friend. He was not on their side. He was not there to help. Them Now he is, he, he is someone to follow, someone to trust, someone to give your life to, right? Someone to come before and say, I am guilty, and you can do it with me as you see fit. So their perspective of God had changed, and they began to trust and to accept their plight and be willing to go to him and pray to him for repentance, the Bible tells us in 1 John 1 and verse 9, if a man will repent of his sins or confess his sins, God is faithful and just to forgive him and to cleanse him from all unrighteousness. And we all are familiar with that verse, but the two verses that sandwich that verse is, this, is simply this, a man who says he has no sins is a liar and the truth of God is not in him. And where, does, where, where do most people fall? Why does a person willing to acknowledge that they are sinful Why does a person accept their sinfulness and be willing to come to a perfectly just and holy God? What happens that causes a person to be willing to do that? Their perspective of that God has changed. If I know that God is going to condemn me, he's going to to bring condemnation on me, I'm going to be afraid to enter into his presence. But if I have my view of that God has changed, to know him as being merciful and gracious, then I am not... I'm not afraid to go into his presence and to put myself before him. But my perspective of him has to change. The reason why people who live in sin go and they hide and they walk in darkness is because they they have the wrong perspective of the mercy and the grace of God. So the first thing that happens in these the first companion of repentance is that their view of God changes. Their perspective of God is altered. And they're not afraid to come to him and to kneel down before him, and to ask for mercy and grace. The second thing that changes in when repentance comes is their view of themselves. He says in verse number uh, uh, the end of verse number five, and they called out for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The Bible goes goes on down throughout the text to say that in verse number. Uh, eight, the end of verse number eight, let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that in his hand, in his hands. there's an acknowledgement, there's a, there's a, there's, a change of pers- there's a change of perspective on who God is. there's a change of perspective on who we are. These, these Ninevites recognize that they are that they're guilty. They recognizes that they're guilty, they're sinners. It doesn't even say that Nineveh came and said that they're sinners. They, they, they had enough sense to put two and two together. And the Bible says that we all have written on our conscious this concept of our sinfulness. We all know that we're sinners. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We've all we've all fallen short of God's glory. However, the problem isn't that we that the problem isn't whether or not we've fallen short or haven't fallen short because we all have. The problem is as we acknowledge that we have fallen short. Do we accept the fact that we are sinners? Is our view of self such that when we come to God, we come to him truly in repentance, trusting him and hoping in him to show us mercy and grace? Or do we come to him in justification of ourselves and, and hope that he will be just with us? You think about the story of the two men that came to the Lord in prayer. The one prayed and told the Lord all about all of the good things that he had done in life. He prays every day and he fasts every day and he gives his tithes to the church. And you know, he might have, we don't know all that he said, but what, he, what we have reflected in the text is that he was very self very aware of his own self, of his own righteousness. And the Bible says that he prayed as if he was praying to himself. And he went away and he was not justified. And justified is just another word for salvation. He came to the Lord, thought himself to be good and left unsaved. The other man comes to the Lord and he says just a few words, Lord, be merciful to me because I am a sinner. And the Bible says that he walked away and he was justified. What, what was the difference between the two men? They were both sinners, right? The difference was as one viewed himself as righteous, and the other one viewed himself as a sinner. The one who viewed himself as righteous met the justice of God because that's what he wanted, right? Did God give either one of them what they didn't want? One wanted justice because he believed himself to be worthy of God's favor. The other one wanted mercy, and God gave him mercy. He viewed himself as being unworthy. Something that needs to take place in the life of an individual who is going to experience God's mercy and grace is they must come to, a, to an honest view of themselves. The Bible tells us in, I think it's Romans 12 and verse 3, that we're to think soberly about ourselves. And that word just means to be honest about yourself. The Bible says that um, where sin does abound, grace doth much more abound. It doesn't mean go out and sin so that grace can abound. What it means is is when you will maximize how how big and how great your sins are, you will experience God's grace. And when you minimize how great your sins are, God will minimize his grace towards you. It's directly connected to your view of yourself. How much grace you receive and how much mercy you receive. It's a changed view of self. And you'll see this in the, in the physical expression. They put on sackcloth, they put on ashes, they fast, and, and, and it happens to everyone. It, they, they fast, they put on sackcloth and ashes, they don't eat and drink. All of those things are taking place in, in the situation to show there's an expression, if you will, of a person's true humility. Humility. Of their, of their brokenness, of their emptiness, they are, they are reflecting on where they're at. It's a changed view of God, it's a changed view of self, and the third thing, and the last thing, is a changed view of sin. They recognize that their sin made them guilty before God. And their view of sin changed. It was no longer, it was no longer okay. It was no longer acceptable. And I believe that when a person comes to, to repentance, they will change their view of sin. They no longer view sin as being okay. They turn away from it. And, and listen, we're all, we're all fallen. We're all, we all struggle each day. I don't think that anybody in here would deny that we all struggle. Even the, the ones who have turned away from their sins, the best have still struggled with their sins. But there, there's something different about them spiritually that... that Um, they recognize their, their fallenness and they recognize their continual struggle with that fallenness and they're continuously dependent on Christ and his grace and his mercy to get them through. The companion of repentance, a changed view of God, a changed view of self, and a changed view of sin. And all of these things are associated with repentance the last thought this morning is the consequence of repentance and how does god respond to this and maybe you're here this morning and the bible says in in luke that we're to your repentance leads to salvation or non-repentance leads to condemnation. Jesus preached repentance and as being a change of, of mind that leads to a change of action. And maybe you've never repented of your sins. Maybe you've never come to Christ. You come to God with a recognition, a true recognition that you are sinful and you are guilty before God and you deserve his condemnation and you are putting yourself at his mercy. And the only way that you can do that is if God, if 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 you have the um, understanding of God as being a merciful and gracious God, if you know Him as uh, biblically, you will know that those who come to Him in repentance, those who come to Him recognizing their own sin and recognizing um, their guilt, and coming to Him in repentance, will receive mercy and grace. And that brings us to our consequences of repentance. It's simply God's mercy. God's mercy is his response to our repentance. God's mercy is his response. You can read it in our text here. It's very clear. The Bible says in verse number 10, when God saw what they had done, how they had turned away from their evil, God relented of his disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God showing a group of people who are guilty, who are deserving of condemnation, God is showing them mercy. In other words, mercy is simply that God does not give us what we deserve. When we come to him in repentance, we come to him empty, we come to him broken, we come to him confessing our sins and confessing our guilt, God's response to that is to show us mercy and grace. It's not that God owes us mercy and grace because we have come to him in this way. It's that God shows us mercy and grace because that is what his character is. I will suggest to you that if you come to God with the the concept that because you come to God in repentance and faith, he must show you mercy and grace, you're truly not coming to him in repentance and faith. Because what repentance says is, I am guilty and God can do, he says it here in our text, maybe we just kind of brushed by it, but I think it's important to note it says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. And it says this, who knows? Maybe God will relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When the king is in no way making a demand on God, he is is coming with, with a full understanding of the fact that he is guilty and he's coming with a full recognition that he deserves to be condemned. And yet he trusts God enough to come to him. He trusts God's mercy and grace enough to come to him and to plead with him for that mercy and that grace. And what does God, how does God respond to a repentant heart? Well, God responds to a, a, a repentant heart with mercy and grace. Somebody who has turned from their sins and turned to Christ, Somebody has turned from their own ways and turned to God way, God's ways, you say, Pastor John, I mean, what level do we have to do that? I don't really feel like I have the ability to turn from my own ways and to turn to his. You don't have the ability to turn from your own ways and to turn to his. But listen, you have to. And what will happen is, is he will enable you. There's nobody that desires to turn from their old ways and turn to their new ways that he hasn't given them the desire for that and will also give them the enablement through the indwelling Holy Spirit to accomplish it. But it's not, it's not an option You can't say, Pastor John, I can't repent. It's impossible for me to repent. That's not an option. Because you will then stand before him one day and you will give an account for a lack of repentance. You must repent. But you must repent in his strength and his ability to repent. And and the consequences of this is that God will show mercy. Let me read a few verses to you. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7. It says, Likewise... You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that in the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your cares on him because he cares for you. In James 4 and 6, it says very similar. But God gives more grace, therefore, it says... God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What I want you to understand this morning is to be a recipient of God's mercy, of God's loving, another word for that is just his loving kindness. If you want to be a recipient of God's loving kindness, you must come to him with a repentant heart. You must come to him with a broken heart. You must come to him holding tightly on to nothing. You must come to him recognizing your sins, acknowledging that he is just and holy and that you deserve his condemnation, but pleading with him that he would save you. In the Old Testament, the Bible says that God pays attention to those who are of a broken and contrite spirit, not those who make sacrifices and offerings. And this will lead to God's Act of mercy. The Bible says in Isaiah 66 and verse 2 But this is the one to whom God will pay attention or will look. He who is of a humble heart and contrite in spirit, and he who trembles at my word. And then one last passage I want to read to you Isaiah 33. Just a a little longer passage, but just listen as I read verse 11 through verse 16. It says this, you conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble, your breath is as a fire that will consume you, and the peoples will be as if burned to lime like thorns cut down and are burned in the fire. Here you, who are afar off what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. the sinners in Zion are afraid trembling has seized the godless who among us shall dwell in the consuming fire with the consuming fire who among us can dwell with an everlasting burnings he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly who despises the gain of oppression who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Who abides in this place? He who stops his ears and he who stops his eyes. The issue is simple this, he who repents. It is he who acknowledges who he is and comes to the Lord for salvation. And what happens when that happens? Well, as you guys know very well, the whole whole city of Nineveh comes to a state of repentance, putting on sackcloth and ashes, coming before the Lord, reflecting their guilt, and hoping, hoping that he will show them, not demanding, but hoping that he will show them mercy. And when we come to the Lord, we don't come to the Lord demanding for him to show us mercy and grace. We come to the Lord hoping that he will show us mercy and grace on the basis, not that we're guiltless or that we've done many good things that would deserve that, but rather we come to the Lord acknowledging our guilt, hoping that he will show us mercy on the basis that he is merciful. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time. Thank you for your word and for the hope that we have in in your merciful and gracious ways. I pray that you would help us to understand these truths, that you would guide our hearts and our minds to believe them, to receive what you have said about us, to acknowledge our fallenness, and, and yet to come to you and to hope in your saving grace. It is the reason why you sent your son to this world to take the full penalty of our sins so that you might show us that mercy and grace. Please bless those who are here with understanding and I pray that you would bring salvation to their hearts. And we'll give you the thanks and the praise for it in Christ's name, amen.